ran out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard, hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. And the guy behind you won't leave you alone. Ring, ring goes the bell. Hello, everyone. My name is Lainey Hoosen. Welcome to our show, Talk Out of School on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM and WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting the public schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. Our guest this week is Dr. Dale Farron, a research professor at Vanderbilt University who has co-authored a fascinating new study on the impact of pre-kindergarten programs on student learning and other student outcomes whose findings are making big waves in the policy arena. But first, some local news. As the Omicron surge recedes in New York City, there's more discussion about the possibility of eliminating the mask mandate in many schools. Governor Hochul said that she would consider doing so in early March, though the mayor could keep it longer in New York City schools in any case. But what worries some health experts is the relatively low rate of vaccination in our schools. We actually don't have good data on this. The city reports figures of 39% for children's ages 5 to 12 and 77% for children ages 13 to 17 overall as fully vaxxed. However, that doesn't tell us what the vaccination rate is specifically for public school students, either citywide or for individual schools. The DOE has refused to report on the system-wide vax rates or for individual schools, despite a local law passed in November requiring them to do so. In an article in Chalkbeat, they claim the delay is for privacy reasons. As some of you may know, I co-founded and co-chair the national group called the Parent Coalition for Student Privacy. And I can tell you that aggregate vaccination rates do not reveal any personal student data. So the DO's refusal to release these figures on these grounds is absurd. Why is this important? Many parents and teachers say the DOE has done very little to raise awareness or the vaccination rates in their schools. And if we had the figures, there could be strategies employed to do just that. New Orleans and Washington, D.C. have mandated that all students be vaxxed. I doubt Mayor Adams will do the same. But he and Chancellor Bank should be doing everything else they can to ensure that as many kids in the system are vaccinated for the sake of their safety, as well as their families and school staff, and as a first step, step, it is important to report on the race at individual schools. Also, news broke last week that the mayor was about to appoint the chair of the SUNY Charter Committee, Joe Bellick, to our school board, the panel on educational policy. SUNY authorizes about two-thirds of the charter schools in the city and many of the most controversial ones that have been shown to abuse student civil rights, including Success Academy. We put out a press release criticizing this upcoming appointment with quotes from some education leaders and advocates pointing out the inherent conflict of interest this appointment would mean, since charter schools have competing interests and pull space and resources from our public schools. At the last minute, Bellick withdrew his name for consideration, reportedly due to pressure behind the scenes and publicly. However, Last week, the mayor also released a preliminary proposed budget for next year that slashes funding for our public schools with the excuse that enrollment has declined. However, if this budget goes through, that will mean sharp rises in class size and loss of essential services in many schools, the opposite of what kids will need after two years of disruption due to COVID. But now I'd like to introduce my special guest, Dr. Dale Farron, research professor at Vanderbilt University. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Farron. 
Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm just very grateful that you're interested. Well, I think everybody's interested in this study. It has really amazing results. Here in New York City, we've spent over a billion dollars expanding pre-K and have been expanding 3K as well in our public schools. So this issue is very critical for us here. First, can you describe your study and explain why, how the way it was conducted is considered the gold standard in research? Thank you. Uh, yes. So this is the first, as you said, ran, what we call a randomized control trial of a statewide pre-K program. Um, in order to get comparable children to be able to follow them, we worked with oversubscribed schools, schools, oversubscribed programs in school systems that we got to cooperate with us. And we uh, uh, um, convinced them to let us randomize their list of applicants and then to take them in that random order. So they, they had more children than, and families who wanted to get in the program than they had seats for them. And by a randomization process, like a lottery, like a lottery draw, some got in and some didn't. And they were very, they were equivalent groups. And um, they were families who were of low income, who, had, who were all motivated to get their children into pre-K. Some of them got in and some of them didn't. And we have, and that's about, we have about 3,000, 2,990 children to be really precise that we've been following from the beginning of pre-K all the way now. Well, we're actually going into high school with them, but we've presented our results through the sixth grade. In the third grade, the results began to turn. Well, let me start again. When they entered kindergarten. This was in Tennessee. Is that right? It is in Tennessee. I, I, there are people who have tried to say, oh, this only has to do with that state. Let's, let's build a wall around Tennessee and say these results only relate to, to Tennessee. And what I would say to them is, fine, do your own study. You know, you can do this. We don't have universal pre-K, so you're going to have oversubscription. So do a lottery draw and then track your children and see if your programs are effective. But let's not keep going on faith. Let's get some data. So, so starting in kindergarten, you looked at these kids, I guess, after they left kindergarten, and you looked at differential results. Can you explain what you found? Well, when they entered kindergarten, um, the children who had, had pre-K had better school readiness skills. And we, it, it, when we presented those results, people really thought we were great because this is the first gold standard study. And here we showed that, yes, they had better school entry skills than the children who were not in pre-K, and they were equivalent groups. By third grade, the First result... First of all, can you explain what school readiness means? Because I think a lot of uh, people don't know, and it's also, uh, in, in your study, you talk about something called constrained skills, which I, I'd really like to learn more about. Right. So uh, we're sort of driven by what people measure as school readiness skills. They really have to do with knowing the alphabet, so knowing your letters, a little bit of knowing letter sound correspondence, knowing numbers. So they're very, they're very concrete, basic skills. And people, call, people have used the term now constrained skills, meaning that there really are only 26 letters of the alphabet. So there's this sort of a definite, definable thing to learn. And the idea was once you learn those things, that they would be the basis then or the foundation for learning other things. But that hasn't proven to be the case. So not just in our study, but in now in all of the recent 
studies of pre-K. By the end of kindergarten, any difference between those who had pre-K and those who didn't has has disappeared. So the children who don't have pre-K but come into kindergarten learn those concrete skills very quickly. And by the end of kindergarten, you can't tell the difference between those who'd had pre-K and those who didn't. The same thing happened in our study. And so we, we weren't surprised. We were a little, you know, sad, but we weren't surprised. But what we didn't expect was things began to turn negative by third grade. So in third grade, we had negative effects on math skills and trending negative on reading and science, the, the three state achievement tests. And, and teachers were beginning to rate the children less favorably. And we saw that the children who had been in pre-K were more likely to be suspended and expelled in third grade for what we call school rule violations. There are two kinds of violations you get suspended and expelled for. One are school rules, that's wearing your hat backwards, you know, not tucking in your shirt, going the wrong way down the hallway, you know, speaking, speaking rudely to a teacher, kinds of things that get you suspended in school but wouldn't get you arrested on the street. Major violations are bullying or bringing a weapon to school or fighting, those kinds of things. By third grade, the children who had been in pre-K were being suspended and expelled more for those school rule violations. By sixth grade, they were significantly more likely to be expelled or suspended for both types of violations. And the achievement behavior effects were found on all three of the, of, of the state achievement tests in a negative direction, reading, math, and science. And these were significant, statistically significant differences. In right. And can you, can you first of all describe what the racial ethnic background of the kids in the study, which I assume were balanced for both the kids who attended pre-K and who didn't? That right, right. That's that's one of the real hallmarks of our study is how how equivalent the two groups were. But this is a Tennessee is a rural state. It's not in the deep south. So about fifty percent of our sample were white, Caucasian. About twenty six percent were African American, and about twenty two percent were Hispanic. And did you? And all of them were low income, which I assume is all, all were all had to meet the income title one. Uh, free lunch or, or yes, right and and was there any difference in the findings for any of the individual racial or ethnic groups no we expected that we really thought that would no we didn't find it's what, you, what in statistics is what you call a subgroup analysis so are there some subgroups who either did better or worse if they had pre-k and we couldn't find any differential effect by subgroups not by not by males or females or blacks or whites or Hispanics. We couldn't find. We found one difference in entering kindergarten, which you might suspect. Hispanic children did a little better in their school readiness skills, but they had farther to go, They, you know, because they were dual language learners. So uh, and, and that difference had disappeared by the end of kindergarten. So a lot of the pre-K proponents are very insistent that it, um, for a quality pre-K program, you need uh, well-paid teachers who are certified and trained in early childhood, et cetera, et cetera, reasonably small class sizes. Um, can you describe the qualities of the pre-K programs they attended in the Tennessee schools in terms of 
those qualities. You write that they met nine out of 10 benchmarks of the National Institute for Early Education Research, but not 10. So which which benchmarks did they meet and which was the one they did not meet? <clears throat> so in, in, in 96, when Tennessee began its pilot programs, you know, states were just getting into the sort of statewide pre-K business. And they looked to the National Institute for Education, Early Education Research, NEAR, out of Rutgers, for information about what they should do. And at that time, NEAR had 10 benchmarks. And the one that we did not meet in Tennessee was that the teaching assistant had to have a two-year degree. So all the others, the class size, the teacher ratio, we had licensed teachers, certified teachers, all those criteria were met. In more recent near publications, they have also then compared states in terms of whether they have licensed teachers, whether they pay their teachers at parity with the K-12 system, whether their teachers get benefits, all of those criteria, Tennessee is in the top third. So our teachers are all licensed and certified. They are all paid at parity with K-12, um, and they all get benefits. The teaching assistants get benefits. They're not paid as well, but they get benefits. So, you know, we meet those kinds of criteria that people are, as you say, people have said are hallmarks of a quality program. And the class sizes were at 20, is that what you said, with one teacher and one assistant? Yes. And that's considered pretty good as well, I think. Yes, it's 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 the criteria that most states, criterion that most states use. I'll be honest with you, I've been in this field a long time. I know we don't really have any good data for why 20, not 18, or especially if you have a classroom full of low language children, why not 12? But anyway, 20 to two, and two adults and 20 children is the norm. Yeah, I think in New York City, it's 18 with a teacher and assistant. And if it goes above, they need two teachers and assistant. So it's a little bit better than that. But in any case, um, you say that none of the racial or ethnic subgroups were could had differential results in terms of their test scores or other behavior or whatever. Um, can you, uh, you did write that more students in the pre-K uh, group were identified for special education services as well, but that might be an artifact of the fact that they were identified earlier and those labels tend to stick over time. Can you explain that a little bit? So by coming in, so now, now my developmental hat takes over. By coming into a formal program at age four, many characteristics of children that might be passing characteristics or just anomalies, you know, I mean, development is not completely uniform. And so, so but these children begin, they were identified and referred for special education. So by the time they got to kindergarten, the children who'd been in pre-K were much more likely to have what's called an IEP, an individualized education plan, than the children who had been in the control group. And we thought that once the children from the the comparison group got into kindergarten, that they too would then be identified. But it didn't happen. So there's something about being in that formal system at age four that gets you identified as needing special education, or maybe... Maybe you're less ready for it. 
than you are than those children who didn't go to pre-K. But once they got to kindergarten, they were not referred as much for IEP. And so, and you're right. Once you get an IEP or once you get a diagnosis of special education, it is very hard to get rid of it. And so we have a continual difference between the two groups in terms of how many of them were referred for special education. And what's sad about that is, you know, the point of being referred to special education is theoretically you're going to get more help. Yes. Yet the fact that more of these students were getting more help because they were identified and getting had an IEP did not in the end lead to better results of those kids. I mean, did you ever look at the subgroups of kids within those larger groups who were identified as as with IEPs and whether they did better or worse than the control group? Within each group, those children who have IEPs do less well on state achievement tests. That's for sure. Right. So you you can compare the control group. We didn't see we didn't see any difference, right? We didn't see any difference. Now, also, um, what people uh, want want to know and, and and asked you before, but I think it's really important: the kids who did not get into the pre-K program, the randomly selected kids who did not get off the waiting list. How, did you look at what their experience was before they entered kindergarten to compare? Um, you know how what what kind of uh, of care they were given or education. Yes. And so let me just give a little background. So as I said, we had identified about 3,000 children that we had randomly assigned. We could have just waited until third grade, but we didn't want to wait until until third grade to get achievement results on these. So we actually consented about a third of that group. More than 1,000 families agreed to have us individually assess their children at the beginning and end of pre-K and also to participate in the family interview. And that's how we know what the, the families in the control group were doing uh, when they, when their children didn't get into pre-K and Tennessee is a rural state and it didn't have a lot of programs. So about 60% of these children didn't have what you would think of as formalized care They were in the care of their parents or their grandparents or their aunts and uncles or a neighbor down the street, but it was not formal care. About um, 11% or so had Head Start and another um, 23 or so percent had um, care in a group, in a, you know, a a group childcare setting. So the majority of these of the children that we're comparing them to in their experiences at age four were with family members in informal care. Which presumably have few, if any, of the qualifications that um, the early childhood community think are necessary for, you know, providing an adequate whatever preparation for for school. Well, and and they did come into kindergarten with lower school readiness skills but they caught up very quickly and then they began to surpass the other children. So let's, let's get to the speculative part of the program because I, the facts are so overwhelmingly astonishing. You must have thought a little bit about what it means and and what we could be doing better in your article. You discussed several other studies that like yours showed similar results. So yours is not the only one though. Yours is, probably the only large-scale randomized experiment that's been done, so that tends to have the greatest weight. But other studies have also showed 
that kids who attend pre-K are more likely to have behavior issues um, compared to those who did not with less self-control, more impulsive, and more likely to get into disciplinary uh, uh, trouble. And really, that's the opposite of what people might expect, that if you had that extra year of pre-K, you would be more socialized into a school-type environment and more able to deal with other kids and with your teachers in a way that would not be getting you in trouble. So what are the possible explanations? I know that we don't know for sure, but if you had to speculate and theorize, what would you say? Well, so this is not the only study that I do. I uh, have spent a lot of time in classrooms. I have an observational system that's uh, uh, what we call a behavior count system. So I can describe, I, I've actually been in hundreds of classrooms, so I can really just pre-K classrooms. So I can describe for you what's going on. And that feeds into my speculation about what these causes are. I cannot link our particular outcomes to particular experiences that our children had, but I can tell you in general how pre-Ks operate when they're serving children from low-income backgrounds. Now, we one of the troubles, of course, with, with, with serving children from low-income backgrounds is what the perception is of what they need. And some people's perception is they need training. They need training in how to do school. They need training in how to uh, uh, handle the rules of a classroom. So there's a, it's a, it's a almost a boot camp sort of mentality. And there's a lot of, um, whole group instruction, which requires a lot of, um, uh, behavior disapproving and behavior control on the part of the teacher. It's hard to make four-year-olds sit crisscross applesauce for 40 minutes without touching their neighbors, without wiggling, which is often required. I mean, classrooms I'm in, it's required. And so um, I think what what happens in these classrooms is uh, there's a lot of external control. So children are having to be compliant to external control. That doesn't necessarily translate into learning internal control, your internal self-control. And part of that you learn sort of bumping up against other children and interacting with them, and you start to develop some sense about what's good and what's not good to do on your own, but it's not necessarily always an adult telling you what to do. And in the classrooms I'm in, the children almost never have a chance to play together. It's all teacher-led. And so these teachers who presumably are certified are not necessarily trained in what experts in early childhood say is necessary for a good education for, for, for young kids. Is that right? Well, I mean, you know, I, I'm an emeritus, emeritus professor from Vanderbilt, and, um, and I just learned, sadly, that the university has, has, is closing down its early childhood licensure program uh, and will only have a K-12, a K-8 program. So what happens if you have even a pre-K through four or pre-K through eight? training program for teachers is they spend an inordinate amount of time learning how to teach children to read and to do math. There's just a lot to cover over that period. And what gets sacrificed is any 
understanding about children's development and their needs when they're much younger. I think you're sort of sort of supposed to pick that up by taking a developmental psychology class, but that doesn't really help you know how to manage and work with work well with a class of learners who are at such different places, you know, who have such different needs when you're four and five. So uh, I think, I think our idea that you have a, a licensed teacher and that teacher's paid well was an interesting idea. There have been three major studies. I didn't do one of them, but three major studies. Uh, one, the last was published in 2018 that find no effect either on children's outcomes or on the quality of classrooms for having a licensed teacher versus not. So I, I think it's more what teachers do. And I don't think these license, the licensure ensures you that teachers will do the right things by children. And the importance of play has been, you know, discounted. I know in a lot of kindergartens where teachers are already put under pressure to get their kids to do well on tests. Um, do you think that's gotten worse over the to- over time? Because kindergarten teachers say it's gotten worse over time in kindergarten. And I'm wondering whether that's that's now spread to pre-K as well. Well, I know I know for a fact that that it's that there's been a sea change in kindergarten. I remember, and and this is really important. I, this is an important point, and let me see if I can make it clearly. I remember because I'm old. I remember when, at the end of the kindergarten wars, was sort of when I was beginning. When people were saying, "We need to protect kindergarten. If it's going to be in the public schools, we really have to protect it. You know, we have to keep it as a warm sort of introduction to schooling, right? Not were these kindergarten wars because I missed out on that. <laughs> well, they were when, when people st- when they started having statewide kindergartens. There was a lot of battle about how what those programs should look and like. When was that? Probably in the sixties and seventies. Okay. okay. Yeah. And um, so, so we lost. We lost. And and just even as early as night in the uh, I was just looking at this recently. Even as early in the early nineties. If you ask kindergarten teachers whether children needed to be academically prepared before they hit kindergarten, they said no. They said no. It was much more important that children were cooperative and that they were that they knew how to control their emotions and those sorts of things. Now, in the most recent work I read, 80% of kindergarten teachers think children should learn to read, read before they leave kindergarten. That's an that's an enormous change and a huge pressure on kindergarten teachers. That's really not appropriate because some children are ready to read in kindergarten and many are not ready to read and not going to read until first or second grade. And it'll be just fine. Right. Right. Well, I didn't learn how to read until first grade and I think I turned out okay. So, (laughs) but yeah, no, I've noticed this with my own kids kindergarten that there is tremendous pressure that they learn how to read. And I think, you know, from my experience also and what I've heard from teachers, it got much worse um, during the Obama administration. Um, Well, first, No Child Left Behind, which started requiring statewide tests in certain grades. And then um, with Race to the Top and all these other uh, programs in which, you know, the testing, the test results became even more important to schools who feared uh, uh, being shut down or having to fire their teachers if the kids weren't succeeding. And that whole emphasis on academic learning and testing 
um, has really driven down to the early grades, even, you know, kindergarten kids getting now all sorts of assessments that they didn't used to get. And so I'm wondering, you know, whether part of the, the part of the problem is that now pre-K teachers, especially the ones within schools, are being driven by some of the same um, um, pressures as kindergarten students. This is Lainey Hameson uh, of Talk Out of School, WBAI-FM 99.5 FM uh, and WBAI.org. I'm here with Dr. Dale Theron talking about her new study on the results of a large-scale pre-K program in Tennessee, a large-scale experimental randomized uh, study, which is uh, the gold standard, which showed actually worse results for those kids who were selected on, in a lottery for pre-K than the kids who ended up either staying home with their parents or going to Head Start or some other more informal arrangement. Um, now, has there been any attempt to look at within the groups that you studied, the ones who did better and the ones who did worse to see if there was anything you could tease out about differential qualities in the pre-K programs that they attended? We, um, we, we can't do that, sadly. Um, because of the way we, um, we had to work with these school systems to get our students identified um, and, and so we were in a, we, we couldn't even know which classrooms we were going to be in for sure until we knew that there were enough children to be on, in both in the classroom and in, in the control group or the comparison group. And so we have another study. So we cannot go back for these children and look at the experiences they had. So there's, a couple of different answers to your question. So let me, you, you can stop me and tell me to start again or whatever. But for, we have another parallel study where we looked at a representative sample of 155 classrooms across the state of Tennessee. And we did observe in those classrooms. And we did look at their, in what's called a regression discontinuity design, where we actually looked at, at, at their scores entering kindergarten but with that sort of design, you can't keep following the children. So we we so one of the things we looked at was there was a, there's a lot of variation. So when you have a statewide program, um, there is there's going to be variation in terms of what teachers do because you're going to have you you can't really control from a central place what everybody's doing. It's easier, it's easier in New York City. And in Alabama, they're trying really hard to have a, sort of a central control over the quality of their program. But most states, it's just, it's just hard. The districts now become responsible really for the quality of the program. So um, I would say that our Tennessee programs, our classrooms look very similar in terms of the kinds of scores that we found as as other classrooms in public schools look. 93% of our of our Tennessee classrooms are in public schools and our scores on the kinds of measures that are used look very similar to other states whose classrooms are in public schools. So there's one tantalizing mention in your study that I saw that uh, positive effects were found in third grade tests for the small number or 12% of students 
who attended high quality schools and were exposed to higher quality teachers. How was that measured that it was a high quality school or high quality teacher? And what about the sixth grade results? So we haven't we haven't done that. That is an extremely complex thing to do. And we're trying to gather those data now from the state. Um, what happens what happens? It's easier to do K through three because teacher students tend to have one teacher. And so we we were able to get the state data on the ratings of the teachers that the children had. The Tennessee, like many states, uses a, a rating metric for um as in many states, it uses a combination of ratings that a principal does in visiting you in, in conjunction with how much gain children make in your classrooms. It's, there's, it's called TVOS in Tennessee. I'm not sure. It's called many different things. But, but K through three, you don't have any gains on state achievement tests because they're not giving them yet. So you just have the ratings of the principals in their classrooms. So we took those. It was my doctoral student now, who's now at Stanford, who did this work, who's a wonderful person, Alvin Pearman. <laughs> he's great. Um, but he gathered all, he's a big data person, and he gathered all these data about the, te- about the ratings of the teachers that the children had. But then in a very clever adaptation, he also looked at the kinds of schools they attended in terms of whether those schools were making more as a whole. We're making more gains than would have been predicted from the population they were serving. So they're serving low-income kids. They were making more gains than might have been predicted. So these are well-functioning schools. And children who went to, children who had pre-K, who went to a well-functioning school and who themselves had highly rated teachers two years in a row, those children... There are not very many of them. Those children looked better on the standardized achievement test when you got to third grade. But that's kind of circular in a way because you're all, you're you're looking at the kids who did better on test scores, had teachers who had kids who did better on test scores, right? I mean, well, in a way, they're, they're the teachers were rated. So they're it's complicated. They're they're kindergarten, first, second, third grade. We don't have any test scores on those children, so we don't know how those teachers children would have done on test scores. They're just uh-huh. rated by their principal on a series of um, set of, of uh, items that look at the quality of their classroom. So that's, that's what we have. And, but almost, I mean, of the 3000 children, only about 10% of them got a situation like that. It's, it, you know, you, you're talking about poor children who are going to poor classrooms and into poor schools. And we're not, sadly, we're not serving children from poor families very well in our K-12 system. So did you look at things like class size? Because, you know, I don't know whether it's a coincidence or not, but we the best large-scale experiment that was ever done in K-12 was also done in Tennessee. And it it's was. called our study. And as opposed to yours, it's also large-scale randomized study. As opposed to your study, it found very robust statistically significant results that kids who were in smaller classes in K through three did better, not just in third grade, but also in sixth grade and more likely to graduate from high school, more likely to go to college, more likely to graduate from college with a STEM degree, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it it makes sense that the class sizes that these kids entered into when they got into kindergarten and then 
proceeded through school might have had a, made, made a difference in terms of their, uh, you know, short-term and long-term results. So did you look at that at all? No, but, but let me just comment about that. I mean, the STAR study is famous. It's wonderful. For it to affect policy, it would mean that kindergarten class sizes would have to be limited to 15. Well, I disagree about that. So, Lou, no, I mean, that's what it found. It, the, the, effects, the effects weren't found until the class sizes got down to 15. So, uh, Professor Alan Kruger, who was a famed Princeton economist, looked at the results differentially across the entire range, even in the larger set of classes. And what he found is that there was linear results. So the smaller class you had, no matter whether you made the threshold of 15 or not, made a big difference. And there are many, many other studies that show that. that do, uh, I, can, I can share with you a whole fact sheet I've done on that threshold effect. It is really wrong. Um, the smaller the class, the better in terms of how much kid, how well kids do. And of course, the kids who, uh, who benefit the most are the kids who need the help the most which are poor kids, similar to the, to the sample that you had in your study. So that's not really true. So in other words... It may not be true as just a threshold effect, but it is true that smaller class sizes matter. And it is true that districts can't or do not or choose not to pay attention to that. And so they don't... I mean, if, if you asked me what I would love, I would love to see K through three or at least K through second have smaller class sizes, I would love for kindergarten to have a teacher assistant or what what Governor Hunt in North Carolina many years ago, he, he uh, got the legislature to put in what he called reading assistants so that there would be another teacher in for K, K1 and 2 to as children were learning how to read. And I, I mean, there are there are things that one could do in the K through third grade system that would could really help children. And so you did not look at class size as a possible contributing effect, either in a negative or positive way to the outcomes of these students differentially across the state. We don't have class size data on K through sixth grade. Well, that's a problem in and of itself. You should, right? I don't, I mean, we, we are dependent upon getting what the state has, what this, what's made available to the state. So I don't remember that, that, that those are data you can pull from the state administrative database. So we re- recently, with a bunch of uh, advocates and, and academics, actually asked the U.S. Department of Education Civil Rights Data Office of Civil Rights to start asking districts for that data because it is very hard to find, um, and the the limited data that the that the the federal government collects is totally out of date and very you know statewide there and and very um, um, unreliable. So I think that's really important data, and hopefully they will start collecting it because we got a lot of people to write in about that. That would be great. Um, we're going to, uh, we have a little bit of time, actually, maybe not. I was going to say time for callers, but I have a few more questions I really want to ask. Um, many states, along with Tennessee, have made serious investments in expanding pre-K. And there are also proposals by the Biden administration at the federal level to increase the amount of funding for pre-K in his Build Back Better uh, uh, proposal. Um, do you know how many states or districts have have publicly funded pre-K and about how many students are enrolled in these programs? 
So the la- the so I, I near collects that data every year, collects those data every year. Um, the last data I have was based on what was done in 2018, and I know near has had um, been quite concerned about what's happened with the pandemic. So let's talk about pre-pandemic where things were going. If 43 states had statewide programs, um, and the um, the actual enrollment of four-year-olds in pre statewide pre-K programs was higher than enrolled in Head Start. So it was there were quite a I can't remember how many hundred thousands of children it is, but it's you know it was a lot, um, and so. Um, so it, it it was really on the increase, and I I think I'm not sure what's going to happen with with COVID now as people are revisiting. But so California is um, moving to have it to change its TK program and make it a pre-K program, and and it it had a different early childhood system, a preschool program, if you will. But now they're moving toward a pre-kindergarten program, so it'll be much more licensed teacher, you know. Um, a basic skills orientation. Um, so I, I just want to make a can I make a point because you were you were of talking course. about play based, um, and and I I'm I want <laughs> the English language is just so limited in terms of what we say. People use it as an academic versus play, like, but what they often mean is laissez faire, and 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 then what they mean by academic what they <laughs> What is really being done when it's called academic is not is basic skills. So this constrained skills that you talked about. So um, when you're, I mean, a number of people, including myself, who've been observing in classrooms, not just not just me, but other people too, have found that teachers ask almost like 94% of the time teachers are asking right answer questions. There's a single answer. There's a right answer. So even when you're reading a book, what's the name of this character? You know, uh, what happened when he opened the door? I mean, what's there's a, the main idea. That's the thing. No, I hate. That would be good because then you might entertain alternatives, <laughs> but, but I mean, the data I have Teachers talk the majority of the time, and I'm, it's, it's not just my data. Other people found the same thing. Teachers talk and talk and talk. They listen to children only about 6 or 7% of the time. This is pre-case you're talking about. Pre-K. Unbelievable, yeah. And so there's no way you can differentiate instruction if you don't listen to children. So you're delivering the same thing to all the children, but the children are in very different places. You could you could know more what children know and what children are thinking if you would ask them, what do you think is going to happen? How do you know that? What makes you think that? And you that know? helps develop their verbal skills and their oh, conceptual skills. And without being able to talk, that can't happen. Exactly. Just, Not just it, talk, but have somebody listen to you. Right. So in our data, uh, children talk about 20% of the time, 23% of the time, something like that. But 7% of that is to themselves. Uh, (laughs) So so yes, maybe somebody's listening, but I'm listening to myself. (laughs) That sounds like how I spend my day talking. (laughs) Nobody's listening. It's when you're younger and when you get older. (laughs) All right. 
So here in New York City, as I mentioned before, it's this is really critical research because we've spent over a billion dollars on expanding pre-K, and now we're talking about expanding 3K. And most of those classes are in elementary schools. Um, I've been following your study since 2015 when the, the initial results from third grade came out, and I wrote about it in a report we put out on the expansion of 3K, showing that it made uh, overcrowding worse in 352 elementary schools in New York City that enrolled more than a quarter of a million students. And I speculated that that was something that we should really be concerned about because if it undermined conditions in those schools, raised class sizes starting in kindergarten, that might really take away some of the gains other, we would otherwise expect. Um, and it was really unfortunate because the community-based organizations that had previously provided of uh, pre-K, publicly funded pre-K through the city had complained bitterly that they'd lost a lot of their students to the expansion of pre-K in the elementary schools. And many of these programs have smaller settings. They provide services through five or six o'clock, which a lot of the pre-K programs in elementary schools did not. And they provide a much more focused, quiet, peaceful setting uh, with a lot more play, it seems to be, than um, or possibly could be, less academically and test-based focus than some of the pre-Ks in the public schools. You've talked about uh, the NIR ratings. Is that how you pronounce it? NIR. NIR ratings. Here in New York City, the DOE utilizes two independent rating systems. One is the ESERS rating, and the other one, I already pronounced it wrong because you already told me it's, it's, it's pronounced how? Eckers. Eckers rating and the class ratings. And according to the independent um, evaluations of, of the programs here in New York City, actually the community-based organizations do better on the Eckers ratings. And part of the, the discussion around that is that there's more, there's more space for play. Uh, there's less moving from room to room. There's less of a chaotic atmosphere when you're in a large overcrowded school getting from place to place to the lunchroom, more time outside playing, et cetera, et cetera, because a lot of them do have their own dedicated outdoor space. And I'm wondering whether you looked at any of the pre-K programs that you were studying with either of these two rating systems. So the, in that, uh, in that uh, parallel study that I mentioned, where we looked at uh, the 155 classrooms across the state, which were, were not where... I, I mean, they were similar to, to where uh, the children that we then followed came from, but they, they were, it was a parallel set of classrooms. Um, the, the Eckers scores, as I said, were uh, very similar to other statewide programs. They're not great. None, none of the statewide programs, Eckers scores, when they have their classrooms in public schools, are very high. I mean, they're sort of like 4.5 on a seven-point scale, um, but it's a criterion reference scale so the the goal is that you would be at seven it's not it's not it's not a curvilinear scale where you want to sort of be in the middle you want to be at the top um yeah everyone theoretically could be at the top in other words everybody could be at the top right if you're doing a good program but 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 you're right it's because of the amount of whole group instruction that takes place in those in these um pre-k classrooms that are in elementary school the less of the the lower amount of time that is spent in center based activities exploring and the less amount of time lower amount of time that's spent outdoors all those things will cause you to get lower eckers ratings 
and, so, and less play-based. I mean, that's what Less play-based, right. Right. And, and, and has there been any attempt to, on any level, either through teacher education training programs or through state oversight of any sort in Tennessee to improve the quality of the programs on the Ecker score or in, or in any other way? Well, they, once our initial data uh, came out in 2015, in 2016, the legislature passed um, uh, in Tennessee, passed a, uh, a law that requiring the Tennessee Department of Education to provide more oversight and more um, uh, assistance to improve the quality. They didn't provide any more money. So um, this was just a mandate that this happened. And I think it's, I know that, that the Department of Education has really tried to make some improvements in their programs. To tell you the truth, I think it's really hard to protect these classrooms from the pressures, the downward pressure, when you're in an elementary school. I'll give you an example. I, I was, I was one, with one really super teacher. She was lovely. And her kids, uh, they had to eat in the main cafeteria, which is a real problem because you have to you have to get there and you have to get there by being quiet. Put a bubble in your mouth so that you don't talk that there, huh? Because we do. We've seen that in charter schools in New York City, but not in the public schools that yeah, I know. Put a bubble in your mouth. Uh-huh. Don't touch your neighbor. Don't touch the wall. Stop on the line when you get to the, you know, the crosswalk of crossways of of, of hallways so they, but but for some reason I can't remember what happened. They they the little kids were with their teacher. They were required to sit at their table in the cafeteria, and they couldn't leave because maybe the big kids had a some special program to go to. I can't remember why. And so to entertain them, she had them take their paper bags that their lunches came in and to start making little masks and things out of them. She was just giving them something to do while they were sitting there waiting. And she was disciplined by the principal because the kids just should have sat there waiting quietly. They shouldn't have suddenly been doing something else, you know, that was much more interesting to them. Anyway. There's a pressure to conform to the overall standards of the school, which are often very strict in terms of disciplinary uh, policies and, and, and practices. And also with the achievement orientation, which gets pushed down to younger and younger grades. Um, and so it's difficult for pre-K programs to diverge from that tendency. And, and in terms of the education and the training that pre-K teachers are getting, um, has there been any attempt to improve that kind of training that you know of in the state of Tennessee or elsewhere? I, I think we're... I think we don't know how to do that particularly. So we do, we do have a, we do have two year programs that are much more child focused that are in the community college system. Um, but they don't lead to, to a licensure. And I don't think school districts know how to work with people who, you know, who don't have a teaching license and, 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 or how to make, what the truth is we've been facing this dilemma for years because we have so underfunded our child care program. What's interesting to me is that we're now pushing all this money into 
into the departments of education to let them run programs for threes and fours. That's and happening not- in New York City, too. Even the earlier childhood, uh, you know, younger kids, younger than three is, is being run increasingly by the Department of Education, which is very scary in a lot of ways. And, and we're leaving the childcare system just to perish because right now, you know, the the staff are way underpaid and therefore way underqualified. And there's a churn between working at McDonald's and working at childcare settings and no benefits, including health benefits. So why do we want to put all the money into a pre-K program why are we not supporting and figuring out? I don't, I really don't understand where the push has come from to put all these, I mean, billions of dollars into pre-K and not any money into improving our childcare system. When, and, and the childcare system run by a separate theoretical yes. group of people that were right. more community-based, more parent-focused, right. more, more play-focused, less academic-focused than the educational superstructure that has arisen in in the last 20 years or so. Um, I just have a little bit more time. I'm really wondering, um, has there been any pushback from the pre-K advocacy community from from the results of your research? Are you being told not to talk about this as much as you're talking about this? I'm sure they'd love to tell me that. I, I'm too old now for them to tell me that. But when, but in 2015, when I would, I was really stunned. In 2015, when I, I'm, I'm a scientist, right? Plus, plus, for all of my life, all of my professional career, my interest has been in children who are in at-risk circumstances, whether with disability or with, uh, in growing up in impoverished circumstances. So my goal has been, what do we do to help improve the circumstances for those children? Unlike what a Swedish graduate student said to me some years ago when learning about Head Start, why does the United States keep working on the consequences of the problem instead of actually working on the source of the problem? But anyway, that's a, we don't. But so when our data, but I, when our data came out, I thought, well, everybody will see, hey, we need to revisit this and think about what we're doing. And instead, even my friends called me a pariah and said, when did Dale stop liking children? Oh, my <laughs> so, God. Well, you, it's, it's slightly different this time, you're saying? The, the people aren't quite as... They're being quiet about it. Okay. Well, I really do appreciate your work so much. I hope you can go into a lot of these classrooms and not only figure out what's going wrong, but fix it and quickly... <laughs> Because we need pre-K, but we need it done in a way that's really humane and beneficial to kids rather than leading to even worse results. So thank you so much, Dr. Farron, for being with us today. Um, our show, Out of Talk Out of School, is available as a podcast if you missed the live version. If you hear it through Apple, please leave a review. Also, please beco- uh, consider becoming a member of WBAI or a special supporter of this show, Talk Out of School. You can go online to contribute or you can call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. We really need the support of listeners to keep going as one of the only non-commercial, purely membership-supported radio stations in New York City that doesn't run any ads. There's no other show on the air, I can say, that really delves into the issues and controversies affecting our public schools in New York City, like Talk Out of School. So if you appreciate what we're doing, please donate to WBAI. 
either online or by phone. We'll be back soon with another episode of Talk Out of School. Until then, be careful, be safe, and thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. Up in the morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study them hard hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. Ready to sell